Mac was a Harvard star, a heralded founder of community mental health services in once downtrodden Cambridge, and the author of a groundbreaking psychological biography of Lawrence of Arabia that had won a Pulitzer Prize. Commandingly tall at 62 years of age and with crystalline blue eyes and a face stretched tight over his skull, like the leathery mask of some totemic figure, he packed lecture halls and seminars, attracted disciples, particularly women, published prolifically, mobilized colleagues against nuclear weapons, and traveled the world on missions of peace. He had met with Yasir Arafat and been arrested at a nuclear test site in Nevada. And he was just back from the Himalayas, where he had joined a select group of professionals discussing aliens with His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. Now, Mack told the conferees at MIT why he thought the abduction phenomenon was not a psychiatric phenomenon, although that was most people's snap assumption, including, at first, his own. But any explanation, he said, had to account for five elements. One, consistency of reports. Two, physical signs like scars and witness back reports of actual absence for a time. Three, accounts from children too young for delusional psychiatric syndromes. Four, an association with witness UFOs. And five, the lack of any consistent psychopathology among abductees. To the uninformed, it appeared like mass hysteria fed by the culture, Max said, except this didn't act like a collective disorder. The experiences were too personal, involving isolated individuals not caught up in any mass movement, and they were risking ostracism and ridicule. Quote, there is no evidence that anything other than what abductees are telling us has happened to them, Max said. The people with whom I have been working, as far as I can tell, are telling the truth. And this has been the impression of other abduction researchers. It was indeed a profound mystery. Some sort of intelligence seems to have entered our world, as if from another dimension of reality. Ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the old usuals, Jay and Rory Wicks. I'm not that old. Hello. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a long walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. Hello, everyone. Welcome to what I'm going to call an extra juicy episode of Noctivigant, which is code for Nick could not get his summary within an acceptable page range. It was a problem. I mean, there's just so much in the book. So today we are going to be taking on The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science and the Passion of John Mack by Ralph Blumenthal. So it's a it's a really, really, really well researched book. 
Yeah. Oh, and I, I thought it was uh, it was very well written, especially that epilogue uh, hit me right in the heart. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, I mean, I kind of expected it to be good. The author, uh, those who don't know at home, we're going to get into this when we get to the about the author. Ralph Blumenthal is among the journalists who was responsible for the 2017 article about the Pentagon's secret UAP program. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the modern push for disclosure uh, came from him. And what's impressive to me is when I looked into him, that is like in, like the the fifth most impactful thing he's done in his career. Uh, he uh, He is a, I mean relative titan in the world of journalism it seems like granted i'm not in the world of journalism but that's what it looks like from the outside looking in yeah no i'm also not in the world of journalism but agree yeah he see, he seems like he's a one heck of a a titan like a lot of people know who he is so yeah yeah and uh so are we ready to begin yeah Let's okay. get to it. I mean, we can We have no no time to waste this time. No, no. So settle in, and by when I say settle in, I mean really settle in. Unbuckle your pants, get some snacks because you're going to be here for a little bit. And so we if, begin. If you're listening to this while driving, you will miss your exit. <laughs> and, uh, and also, don't unbuckle your pants if you're driving. It's just weird. If you forget, you get out and you just moon a bunch of kids. <laughs> Nick knows this from experience. Yeah, but with him, it was a shrimp net. <laughs> that shrimp net was begging to be explored. <laughs> anyway, on June 24th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold, private pilot, experienced his now legendary sighting of nine flying saucers soaring past Mount Rainier in Washington, moving at an estimated 1,200 miles per hour. Far from the only witness, the craft was seen by prospector Fred M. Johnson, who spotted the craft from a mountaintop and soon discovered that his compasses were rendered inoperable by some strange magnetic force. This event, combined with the Roswell crash later that same year, kicked off the flying saucer rage of the 50s and 60s, with which we are all too familiar. All across the world, would-be saucer fanatics turned their eyes to the skies in hopes of spotting those wondrous flying machines. The media published articles of the best sightings in prominent magazines, and within the halls of government, the projects which would one day become Project Blue Book began. And right in the middle of this massive cultural event, the hero of our story, then 18-year-old John Mack. Mack was born October 4th, 1929, only 20 days prior to the stock market crash which kicked off the Great Depression. However, rather than living a life of poverty and hunger, as many of his countrymen were, Mack and family endured the hard years in relative comfort. Born to a wealthy German-Jewish home, he was raised as a strict materialist by his father, an English professor named Edward Mack. His mother, Eleanor Mack, was a brewing company heiress. Living in a secular household, Mack was raised with the understanding that death was a hard line past which laid only non-existence, an understanding which would haunt him for much of his life, due in part to the tragic loss of his mother to appendicitis less than a year after he was born. The infant Mac was shuttled around between relatives until two years later, Edward married the recently widowed wife of a stockbroker, Ruth Gimble, giving Mac a new six-year-old stepsister and a stepmother who forbade any mention of Eleanor, not even allowing the child Mac to see a photo of his birth mother. This, in Mac's own estimation, laid at the root of the sadness and hurt he felt for much of his life. As his ex-wife Sally Mac once said, quote, there was always the missing woman in his life. This missing piece would later drive Mac out of the marital bed and into a long series of affairs, which would ultimately end his marriage. 
Some would even attribute his attention to the great mysteries of the abduction phenomenon to this early loss. But long before he was John Mack, the abduction guy, he was John Mack, the promising young doctor. He attended Oberlin University and then later Harvard, where his intense focus during medical autopsies earned him the nickname Mack the Knife. However, rather than follow the surgeon's path, he eventually brought the same laser focus to psychiatry, perhaps in the hopes of coming to a better understanding of himself. His first residency was at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center, during which he met his wife, Sally Ann Stahl, at a party in 1959. Soon into their courtship, Mac learned he was to be drafted into military service and proposed. They married quickly, then Mac was dispatched to the Tachikawa Air Force Hospital in Tokyo, Japan. Sally followed soon after, and their first son, Danny, was born shortly after that. Between 1962 and 1963, they would have two more children, Tony and Kenny, all sons. Once back home, Mac seized upon a funding initiative to bring mental health services to Americans nationwide. He petitioned Harvard leadership into adopting the nearby Cambridge City Hospital, where Mac and other Harvard alum would work to develop a new psychiatric program. Psychiatry at the time was relatively unknown to many people outside academia, and while trust was slow to build, Mac soon earned the respect of fellow hospital staff due to the empathy, care, and attentiveness he showed his patients. It was also during this time that he published two books, one on nightmares titled Nightmares in Human Conflict, and the other, a biography of T.E. Lawrence titled A Prince of Our Discord. Blending biographical information with psychiatric insight, the book would go on to win the Pulitzer. In his book, Mack included the following quote from Irving Howe's T.E. Lawrence, The Problem of Heroism, quote, the hero, as he appears in the tangle of modern life, is a man struggling with a vision he can neither realize or abandon, a hauntingly accurate image of the man Mac was to become. Wanting to do more for the world, Mac attended a conference in Beirut on the psychology of the Middle East and joined several civilian diplomatic initiatives to try to bring peace to the war-torn area. His work often drew him away from home, which, coupled with his affair with a Cambridge psychiatric nurse, introduced an understandable amount of friction into his marriage. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> yeah. Yet his work continued all the same. Growing increasingly concerned over the prospects of nuclear war, Mac joined a group called Physicians for Social Responsibility, an activist group made up entirely of physicians with a strong anti-nuke position. This group would, by the mid-80s, boast over 40,000 members, were the first to succeed at building a U.S.-Soviet coalition of civilians against nuclear war, and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. He even got the family involved when, at a protest in Nevada, Mac, Sally, Kenny, and Danny were all arrested. It was shortly after that that he attended a self-realization workshop and met Rosamund Roz Zander, a mother, landscape painter, family therapist, and partner in one of Mac's longest-lasting affairs. This was also when Mac began to challenge the materialist worldview which he had been taught as a child and embrace more spiritual practices. Uh, and so that kind of covers the early life of John Mac. So I'm going to pause here for our first discussion question. Uh, so looking at Mac's early life, there's not a lot of indication of the coming obsession with the abduction phenomenon that would come to uh, kind of represent him in a lot of people's minds. Uh, keep in mind what we know of his later work. Do you see any signs from his early life which indicated to you what was coming? Uh, and what, what about Mac do you think made him so ready to accept the impossible when it did come knocking at his door? Um. 
yes, I I can definitely see that 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 constant longing for something that he felt like was missing due to his uh due to his disconnection from his mother that that frequently leads people down spiritual paths initially and honestly a strict materialistic worldview is raising children in that tight little box and just being like the only things that are real are the things that you can experience with your five senses and everything else is bullshit. That's basically begging the universe to make sure your child gets into something wacky and strange because speaking from experience there, Jay. Yep. <laughs> you did this to me, Jeff and Sherry. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I de- I definitely see signs of that in in, reg- in regards to that is the the searching for the missing piece of it's uh, combined with a materialistic worldview of it, it's probably pretty devastating to grow up in an invite in a situation where your mother died before you could really remember her and your stepmother out of whatever was going on with her tried to scrub every trace of her from your life. And then you're being told your five senses are the only things that you can trust. Only things that exist in a tangible physical space are real. Then you're essentially just being told it's like your mother is gone and you're never getting her back and you'll never have anything tangible of her to hold on to. That is going to inevitably damage a child and that child is going to continue to exist in that adult as he grows up into one. And it's it's probably going to lead to him seeking some sort of fulfillment. And as we've discussed many, many times, if you are yearning for fulfillment or something, some sign of something greater, the universe will, after a while, happily oblige. Mm. Yep. Uh, also, the, the I I do think his anti his his anti nuke activism probably definitely had something to do with it of taking that sort of we are a global family and we have to take care of each other perspective. I feel like is conductive to opening people's eyes up to what we call the phenomenon because that interconnectivity is it's not the next step down the line. But it's it's it is down the line steps later of like we need to take care of the world because we all live in it can after several years escalate into we are connected to every grain of sand and every star in the sky. I mean, I. Yes, like I agree wholeheartedly with like, I think, yes, okay. Yes, I think that there was signs that he would have this kind, not necessarily the, like the alien obsession, but that he was going to be an obsessed person. And I think uh, Jay hit the nail on the head with, was saying that it was because of the early loss of his mom. And I can relate to that in a lot of ways. Like my mom didn't die, but she wasn't a part of my life. And I always sought after like something, right? Um, and, and just because I always felt like a part was a part of me was missing. And I think that, uh, I, I not, so I kind of related strongly with Mac there and I have similar tendencies that he does to kind of rabbit hole myself into anything that gives me the happy juice, you know? 
Got to hit that dopamine button until it stops working. Then you find a new button. Exactly. And I feel like in a lot of ways, that's exactly what he was doing. And I think that along with his anti-nuke activism, because as we know, looking at like reading all the other books that we've read, Trinity, uh, UFOs over the White House, all, all of them, there is a correlation between UFOs and nukes. Like 100%, there's a, there, there's a correlation between them. Uh, so he was going to hear about it eventually, especially when he was, what, 18 at the time of the height, or, you know, he was 18 at the start of the height of the UFO phenomenon. So it's not like he was going to just not hear about it. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, he did say in a couple interviews that we watched um, that initially he did write it off, but at the same time, I think... Again, there's a big difference between something that you are writing off because that is the cultural standard response versus this opinions that you develop once you actually pause to look at something. And I think a big part of what and I think just because he was such an anti like anti nuclear individual and kind of in some ways an environmentalist. I think the fact that a lot of these abduct, uh, like the abduction cases that he worked, those people would come back with these grand visions of, you know, the earth being destroyed. And in a lot of ways that probably helped influence him going down this, down this road because it aligned with his personal, uh, like beliefs, opinions. It was something that he was interested in uh, to begin with. So now it's just another, uh, like another piece to that puzzle, I suppose. It, it, not to get too, uh, I guess, esoteric about this, but put it like that, it almost seems like Mac was packaged for this particular problem. Yeah, I mean, you could say that, especially when most, most, if not all, therapists slash psychologists slash um psychiatrists at the time were probably writing off these people as just loons and repeatedly over and over again, you hear about how empathetic he is, how, Mm -hmm. how much he'll, you know, he, he's willing to listen to them and not just write them off as crazies. He takes them for their experience and, you know, he researches it. He tries to understand it. And that was something that nobody else was doing. And probably to this day, nobody's really doing Not with experiencers. I mean, there are experiencer groups, but I don't know of any major name, you know, like a person with a lot of credentials behind them, a lot of awards behind them, and also a big name university behind them actually looking at the experiencer narrative seriously. I think the closest we have right now is Avi Loeb with the Galileo Project, Mm. uh, but that is by you know by its mission statement strictly about nuts and bolts craft and identifying the craft in the sky and they, actually Avi Loeb has said that he specifically did not want to get into experiencers because he sees humans as the most imperfect measuring tool and he only wants kind of you know he's someone who wants those hard data points uh, which I mean I I can understand that uh, we, I think we're going to talk a little bit later more about where experiencers might fit into this but. The, the whole thing, honestly, the more I read the book, it just started to seem so fucking cruel to me 
that it's like you can't even they're they're expressing psychological distress from this thing that they felt happened to them and you're not able to diagnose them with psychosis you're not able to diagnose them with pathological lying but they're still experiencing distress from these memories and you won't even you won't even fucking treat them from that frame of mind you you send them away you toss them back out into the world because you can't because it, the reason we have the DSM-5 is because insurance companies will not cover any treatment without a without a diagnosis and most clinics um even if you're paying out of pocket most clinics will not provide you treatment if you cannot be labeled with a diagnosis that exists in the DSM-5 and because experiencers defy the DSM-5 and its convention, uh, they just they they just get sent away. And we can't even we're, we're ba- basically it seems like psychologists and psychiatrists are just instructed to ignore them and treat them as if they're a thing that's not happening. And it just again, it just it just feels cruel. It just feels limited and cruel. Well, I ab- absolutely. And I think John Mack noticed that, too. I mean, he talked frequently. We have a bit we're going to be talking about in a bit uh, in a little bit here about the trauma experienced by abductees. It, it went so far beyond the experience uh, because of the reactions they would get in society uh, and that the, the feelings of isolation they'd get. Um, and it's not too dissimilar from uh, narratives I've read from people who, uh, for example, they they came forward about sexual assault and no one believed them. Uh, you know, it's that's I think and I, I mean, I think probably the denials come from some very, very base part where there's certain ugly things about reality that the human mind does not want to deal with. And when it's confronted with it, a lot of people's response is to shove it down mm-hmm. is to say, well, if I say that you're crazy, I don't have any responsibility to adjust my worldview. Yeah. And I think that goes into a lot, not just the I really, I mean, the experiencers, you know, be it even just somebody who saw a UFO, people who have experienced hauntings, people, I mean, I, anything that we would cover on this show, like, yeah, like people who legitimately experience these things do not get treated fairly by anybody in the like mainstream uh, psychology, psychiatry world because Which- they just get written off as loons. And that's fucking, it's... It's not taking the potential for the, the the potential for discovery seriously, and that's just wrong. I mean, I just saw a thing today where fifty two percent of the American population believes in ghosts, and yeah, we have like Discovery Channel shows. But if you, God forbid, you try to make something serious about the topic uh, that you know doesn't reduce it down to an hour long investigation where it's just some guys running around in the dark screaming. I- Every time John Mack compared what was happening in his field to the Freudian cover up, I I got I got angrier and angrier because that's exactly what I was thinking. It did uh, for those at home who are now going to share my everlasting rage. Um, the Freudian cover up was when Freud was at the height of his popularity and giving treatment. Um, a staggering number of his female patients were telling him like, oh, yeah, my dad's been raping me since I was six. And he started like he started, you know, being being like, hey, what what are we going to do about this? And um, he started 
he started encouraging these women to distance themselves from their fathers or from their abusive husbands or whoever was doing this to them and encouraging them to come forward. But the men in their lives who were the ones paying for the treatment basically came to him and they were like, ah, doc, she makes she makes shit up. You, you know, you know, girls with their hormones, they make they make shit up. And if you don't say she's making shit up, I'm going to stop paying you and I'm going to tell all my friends to stop paying you, too. And so after a while, Freud said, I have made a startling discovery. Ninety percent of women who say they've been raped are secretly fantasizing about their fathers and they're manifesting their forbidden incestuous desires as these bizarre and completely preposterous fantasies. And um. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's horrifying. Yep. Deeply, deeply horrifying. Yeah, and that's that's what John Mack was re- was re- was referencing multiple times throughout the book when he was uh re- when he was like referencing Freud's reversal or Freud or whatever. That's what he was talking about, and that's what he was comparing Harvard's response to his abduction research to. And again, the the parallels are there, especially with like the, some of the articles that were coming out that were saying like these people are clearly just ashamed to express masochistic sexual fantasies so they're making this crap up We're, we'll get there we got that coming so yeah. actually uh, I think that's a good point to move into our next section have you guys ready In 1971, Mack attended a conference on the frontiers of human health at a former homosexual bathhouse turned den of New Age philosophy, Esalen. It was there he met LSD researcher, Czech-born Stanislav Grov. Grov had long been interested in the use of psychedelics to trigger spiritual experiences and had developed an exercise he called holotropic breathwork to simulate these experiences without the use of drugs. As part of a group of 11 participants, Mac was led through the exercise and reported experiencing a vivid memory of his mother's death, as well as a memory from medieval Russia, where a Mughal Tatar decapitated his child. Finding the experience fascinating, he signed up for a 12-day program on Cortez Island in the Strait of Georgia. During his time there, he reported recovering memories of his birth, his mother's blue corpse, and a strange vision of babies in some sort of incubator tended to by invaders who were here to replace us and punish us for not loving ourselves enough and not giving warmth to each other. It was also there that he met a fellow therapist, Blanche Chavoste, who had a patient that believed he had been part in the CIA's illegal mind control experiments, MKUltra. To her surprise, during a hypnoregression treatment with the patient, they suddenly uncovered memories of what appeared to be an alien abduction. In need of help, she was put in touch with none other than famed ufologist Bud Hopkins. At Chavoste's insistence, Mac called Hopkins and the two eventually met at Hopkins' home, where they went over what Hopkins knew of the abduction phenomenon and the cases he had investigated thus far. Hopkins then handed Mac a stack of letters from other abductees and sent him on his way. Mac would not read the letters immediately. Instead, he had to go to Prague for a meeting with an activist organization he helped found, the Center for Psychological Studies in the Nuclear Age. While he continued to work on the lofty goal of world peace, he was inwardly troubled by his continued conflict with Sally over Roz, whom Sally was now fully aware of. As he wrote in his journal on that trip, quote, my soul is a wide open sewer into which and out all sorts of crap flows. If I can't find fulfillment with Sally, what are my options? 
It was not until his flight home that, perhaps looking to take his mind off his relationship woes, he began to pour through the abduction letters and fostered a new obsession. Back home, Mac hit the ground running, first getting into spirited debates on the subject in closed-door meetings with colleagues, including none other than Carl Sagan, who thought Mac had lost his damn mind. He then met with four abductees in Hopkins' New York home. Despite the warnings from friends, lovers, and colleagues to be careful for fear of ruining his reputation, Mac showed little restraint. He began cultivating a client list of his own abductees, finding it important to hear fresh voices which had not been, intentionally or not, swayed by Hopkins' clear belief in the reality of the phenomenon, a belief that Mac began to share the more reported abductees he met and worked with. And through them, Mac noticed a few undeniable trends. For one, many experiencers reported taking part in a breeding program, as was the story of a Michigan-based environmental protection worker, Amy Angelin, who recalled several abductions and pregnancies with hybrid children. Like many others, Amy also received dire warnings about the health of the planet, and also like Amy, most experiencers left these events with a greater concern for ecological issues. He also noted that many experienced other positive side effects of their abduction, including greater empathy and a feeling that they had played a part in something truly grand that hence justifies their suffering. Abductees often recall being taken from their beds into gleaming, seamless white rooms and being worked upon by short men whom we would know as the greys or other types of ETs. They would also often report nearby witnesses being switched off, their consciousness somehow suppressed during the abduction event, and that many abductees bore odd scars from their experiences. In October 1991, he brought his research into the light with a 103-page manuscript titled The Abduction Syndrome, in which he detailed his work with 34 abductee patients. His most surprising finding being that there was very little surprising about the abductees. They were from all walks of life and usually of a normal human pathology. He also noted incredible consistency in the experiences and entities described by abductees, even among young children who, he argued, were too young to have any knowledge of the typical trappings of the abduction phenomenon. If anything, most showed signs of trauma connected to their abduction event, which did not develop until after the unwelcome intrusion into their lives and the reaction they received from others when they told their story. As Mac would later say during a presentation at Harvard, the abductee's trauma is fourfold. There's the experience itself, the isolation of knowing nobody believes them, the shattered sense of reality, and the, mo- and the knowledge that another abduction could occur at any time. Mac sent his early draft around to a few colleagues and word spread quickly across Harvard campus. Soon, Mac was invited to share his research at an academic forum and then later organized a special lecture in Harvard's mockatorium. While there were the predictable shouts of scientific heresy and claims that Mac had gone insane, overall, he received a far better reception than he expected, most criticism amounting to little more than hot air. However disgusted some in the academic establishment were, the ufological community was thrilled. As Walter Andrus, director of MUFON at the time, wrote Mac, quote, We are excited that you have become deeply involved with the abduction phenomenon because your professional status lends immense credibility to this study. And that, that's where we're going to come to our second discussion question. So this is where I want to start talking about abductions. Um, 
prior to this book, what did you guys think about the abduction phenomenon? And did reading about Mac's research and his findings uh, adjust that understanding? And also, I mean, I, I guess the, the last part of this question is how important do you think it is for respected researchers like Mac to throw themselves into these anomalous su- subjects? So prior to this book, um, my knowledge of abductions was, uh, I, I don't want to say minimal. It just wasn't necessarily the topic that I was the most interested in when it comes to UFOs. Sure. I, I knew about, you know, some of the more famous ones like, uh, like the Hills, for example. I mean, we've talked about them in other books mm-hmm. and, and everything, but, uh, I, 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 I didn't know, uh, like I didn't, I didn't know a whole lot. I never really looked into it a whole lot because as far as I knew, it wasn't happening that often. I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's happened a lot more than I, than I had thought. And, but nonetheless, I think it's incredibly important. I think it's even more important now that people look into it because, um, well, it's happening. Yeah. And we need to know why. And there are still active abductee support groups out there and they're now bigger than ever because they're online. And I, I think it's, I think it's, I, I, I hate the idea that so many of these people just, they probably don't say anything mm-hmm. because they're afraid of the stigma that comes with it. And I fucking hate that we, as a society, continue to stigmatize, you know, to put that kind of uh, pressure on on people over something when really all they're asking for is help. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes not even that. Sometimes just listen. Just listen and don't call me crazy. Help. Yeah. Therapy. They want to de- they they want this trauma to not be as overwhelming as it is, and it is a trauma. Even if even if at the end of the day the people come out with a more positive experience, which a lot of them have, they still have to get through the the I got abducted by fucking aliens to get there. What well, I mean, kind of a personal experience. I've never been abducted or anything, but. Just I, you know, that I was in a bad car wreck in 2008, as you two know, and I was very badly hurt. And it was a very traumatic experience that I'm still processing some problems with. Cars still freak me out. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I could still acknowledge that that event made me a more confident, stronger person because I was tested. Really, I, I, I saw where my limits were and I, I came to a better understanding of who I was and what I wanted and all of that. But I, and it's possible to have all those good experiences while still being traumatized by the event. Because and I think that's something I it took me a long time for me to rectify with that regarding my car accident. I can't imagine how much more difficult it would be with something so strange, so you know, otherworldly and so far beyond anything most of these people would ever expect to encounter. Especially when um, most, if not all of those people weren't people that were interested or in, you know, in, in investigating the supernatural in any way. No, you know, they were just people driving along the road or sleeping in their bed or whatever it is, whatever they were doing when it happened. But now they have to deal with what, whatever the fuck just happened to them and nobody is willing to listen to them. And that, that sucks. Can, I, I, all I can think about is, can you imagine the pressure 
of if this happened to you and you tried to tell some people and no one believed you, so you decided not to tell anyone, but the pressure of carrying that event alone for the rest of your life. I, w- I mean, it, 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 it drive you nuts. It kill, yeah, it kill people. Yeah, absolutely. And if for no other reason, if for no other reason, there should be people out there taking it seriously just because the, these people clearly need some kind of emotional help. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to research into the why behind the abductions, that's fine. But fucking talk to them, you know, and and I feel like we're just not like there's like nobody out there is really doing it and they're not taking it seriously. And if they if they are, if there are experiences out there, experiencers out there that are going, you know, they maybe they are getting therapy. But is that therapist doing them the benefit of believing them? Yeah. And I think that's the big question is. How do I mean, really, as a society, it seems like we need to get past that very human gut impulse to disregard what doesn't fit your existing paradigm. Yeah. Uh, Which, I mean, really, you could say it all you want. We need to increase critical thinking. We need to encourage and incentivize curiosity. Uh, But there is a part of me that worries that there is some basic human mechanism meant to protect itself. And that's what we're coming up against here is. Once some once the brain has accepted a certain form of reality, it's very resistant to that form being messed with. Well, I mean, absolutely. Change is hard. No matter no matter how you shake it, change change is hard. Um, But here's the thing. Uh, It's possible. Oh, sure. Uh, I was like I was I, I was an evangelical conservative for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And now I am not. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and it's just like, it's, it, it frustrates me to no end because I don't think it's that hard to listen to somebody, you know, and I, 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 I can't imagine that there, that there are people out there or, I can I I can't imagine what those people are are going through like fuck man I go to therapy twice a month and I haven't had anything like this and I've been doing this for years straight now and I'm still not better I can't imagine I mean you don't you'll never really fully recover right Mm -hmm. but I'm at a, you know, I'm at a place where I can have a great job and I can actually hold it for a long period of time, which I can't imagine that these people are like oh, the, the shit that they're probably going through in their own head. Like I know when I was caught up in my, in all my bullshit, I couldn't hold a job. I couldn't get out of bed half the time because of the deep depression and bullshit that I was in. Like, fuck. I if I was abducted by aliens, I'm not sure I would have made it. Like, yeah. I I mean I I feel very similarly. Um, I don't know how I would have reacted to that experience. I mean, as far as I know, I have never been abducted. As far as I know, I don't think any of us have. As far as I know, I have not. And like, I'm sorry that I've been like, I've, I'm like fumbling over my words a lot on this, but it's like it's just so hard for I can't I can't wrap my mind around the idea of not wanting to help somebody. Who is in need of it? Yeah. And it's so prevalent inside, even inside the UFO community to just disbelieve at first. Well, and worse, there are people who 
All right, this might be something that we, we might talk about a more, bit more later, but the more troubling instinct I've seen beyond just rejecting and saying, no, that's not real, is something I've seen recently in the UFO community of, okay, yeah, sure, experiencers, you've had your experiences, but we're not ready yet to talk about them. Like Basically saying, you just go sit in the corner until the disclosure conversation is far enough along that we could talk about you because otherwise we're going to freak out all the squares. I don't. And like, fucking care. Well, like that's the thing. I get it. I mean, from a PR standpoint, sure. You know, you wanna you wanna boil the frog slowly. You gotta, you know, what the most easy to deal with part is nuts and bolts craft. Let's start there, and then we'll start p- pushing all the weird stuff out to uh, the rest. You know, the the rest of the world. But the fact of the matter is. I don't think and I I think John Mack didn't think that you'll ever approach anything even close to an understanding unless you're looking at that as well. And also beyond that, again, like you said, it's immeasurably cruel to the believers. Yeah. Uh, You know, and we we harp on at least I know I do. uh, We harp on this all the time about how a lot of this a lot of this breaks down to we as a society need to just evolve our idea of like what's out there, what's not, uh, you know, level up our consciousness. However, in the million different ways that we've put it on this show and that the world puts the, the world says it, it needs to happen Yeah, because there is a lot, like a lot of people out there are never going to accept the idea of an alien abduction just because like you said, they, they just can't, they can't accept it. It's, it's one bridge too far. Yeah. And, and you know, like to a certain extent, sure. I, I get that idea, but at the same time, like oh, the other part of me just wants to be like fucking grow up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And you know what the funny thing is? I was trying to think about this is, you know what? I bet it, it must, cause here's the thing. Growing up, I grew up a weird kid. I, I alien abduction never seemed like something that was impossible to me. Sure. Uh, but similarly, I was trying to think, okay, what does feel impossible to me, but I know is true. And I was thinking of QAnon, the people who genuinely believe in satanic pizza parlor, child sacrifice rings. I can't, it can't, compute in my head that a a grown adult actually believes that and i bet you it's a very similar thing it's just a bridge too far in my brain i i guess the difference there to me is that QAnon is based in hate and fear oh sure no i'm not not, that was not me being a QAnon apologist no no i know i'm and it's like and i guess that but that's where the difference is like for for me it's like Alien abductions aren't based in 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 hate and fear like QAnon is. So all all that most experiencers are trying to to get you to do is just acknowledge them. If that, there's many that don't want to. At most, don't ever want to talk about it. And, and I guess what I mean by acknowledgement is say, yeah, this could happen. Yeah, right? that, sure. That that's all they want. Well, QAnon wants you to believe that there's a, co- a a cabal of five fucking people that are controlling us all and fucking kids in a pizza basement. Like, well, and also the thing is, those ki- <laughs> those kids have never showed up on Oprah. You know, those kids are in an invisible theoretical idea that has never manifested. Abductees that they're they're they've been on talk shows. They've there's been articles. So the, we know the faces of these victims even. Yeah. And still people can't just see them as a fellow human being. Well, and the John Mack did that documentary, which I actually watched, and it was super 90s. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, everything John Mack is in a super 90s. That was yeah. his era. But like, there you go. There's faces to this again. And none of these people were like, 
like not so crazy mm-hmm. people with wild head. No, they were normal fucking people. So uh, we've been rambling a lot. Jay, I want to give you a chance to answer the question. Oh, interesting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that was, that was a joke. Um, so, uh, before, before I started hanging out with you people and engaging with this stuff that you do, uh, I thought the abduction phenomenon was to put it bluntly, a load of horse shit and not something worth paying attention to. Uh, like I'll, I'll be completely honest with that. I, I was thoroughly in the camp of this is not, this is not a thing. That's, this is not remotely in any way, shape or form a thing. How could it be? And especially anything that involved hypnoregression therapy, I, I would I would roll my eyes at that because I, you know, I'm aware of the satanic panic and the accusations of satanic ritual abuse. So, uh, you know, hypnosis, as far as I could tell, was just a fancy word for the doctor tricked you into lying because I don't know. He's a cackling mad scientist that lives in a castle at the top of a mountain made of dead babies like. Wow. (laughs) That my. My parents had a lot of very strong views on a lot of things, and they would repeat them to me ad nauseum until I could recite them back, having memorized them by heart. Uh, And then I started reading this book and a few other things that very that very quiet, calmly and very patiently uh, did like, let's do a compare and contrast on what happens with abduction rememberers with adductors. Experiencers. I'm not going to try and say that word ever again. Experiencers <laughs> and the people who uncovered memories of SRA. And Nick, I believe this was the moment that you said had me cramering into your office yeah. to shout about it. Um, I came, yeah. listeners, I came bursting into Nick's office screaming, it wasn't full hypnosis. And Nick's just laughing at me. And I'm like, no, no, no. What they did in the SRA cases was full hypnosis. The people were not cognitively aware of what was happening in the session anymore. And they were being guided through the these memories you can hear on the tapes the psychiatrist actively implanting these memories via suggestion via guidance and then you compare it to the tapes of experiencers where they're not under full hypnosis they're largely cognizant of the fact that they are still present in the room that they are in because it's mod- it's modified hypnosis it's a relax it's a relax- relaxation technique i believe nick you said specifically it's largely just guided meditation as far as i can tell what john mack was doing with these people was largely guided akin to guided meditation what john mack was doing now that is not to say that all yeah. Uh, all of it because yeah. Heineck specifically did like worked with people who did full yeah. Yeah. Uh, regression well, hip- and hypnosis. I, I, just, the re- yeah. I do. The only thing reason I'm going to clarify Mac is just because just Mac, because I haven't looked too much into the other abduction researchers. Um, I don't know what they do. I, I do know that what happened with Betty and Barney Hill was very different and yes. it was more yes. akin to the hypno sessions that SRA rememberers mm-hmm. were uh I'm, I'm subjected to. I'm going to choose the loaded word of they were subjected to those sessions. But yeah, and and Mac, I, I will admit, Mac occasionally was leading the witness with some of his stuff, but most of the transcripts, he was just prompting. He was just, he was asking things like, is there someone in the room with, or he was just saying like, what is it? 
Where are you? He's asking very basic questions that any psychiatrist would be acting would be asking while someone was experiencing a a flashback, like a genuine clinical flashback. And um, I started to get very angry at exactly how misled I had been because I had been told that the experiencers uncovered memories and the SRA cases were fundamentally the same thing. And um, I have now come to the conclusion that at least in the case of John Mack and similar practitioners, it is not the same thing at all, uh, especially because he repeatedly said, like, these memories were already close to the surface and a lot of them came back without hypnotic prompting. I think the statistic listed listed was a full third of experiencers uncovered their memories on their own with no prompting from a psychiatrist. They were just going about their day and just boom, it came out of nowhere. And uh, that is not the same thing at all. That is not what happened in S in uh, satanic ritual abuse cases of those memories were described as being buried very, very deeply. And there needed to be a lot of forcible pushing in hypnotherapy sessions in order to even begin uncovering them. And um, so I was already coming around a bit to abduction cases before this. And um, I'm much more thoroughly in the camp of fuck it, probably. Of you know, you know, you know what you're talking about. I mean, the idea of them suddenly of abductees suddenly remembering just going about their day. I couldn't help but think about uh, my own UFO sighting I had as a kid that I forgot about for 15 years. And yeah. I mean, you guys were in the room when the it hit me. The memory it was just very vividly suddenly there. I remembered it. Yeah. Um. I remember it happening and I, I've got to imagine it's a very similar feeling. Uh, the brain just tucked that memory somewhere away for safekeeping till you were ready to deal with it. Yeah, and there was also the fact that I had been, I had been led to believe that it's like, Oh, and all of like, that's cause that's one of the things with uh, satanic ritual abuse cases too, is that there wasn't, th- there was signs of psychopathology, before they entered into I'm not even going to call what was done to those people treatment. What was done to those people was functionally brainwashing by doctors who didn't know what they were doing. Um, Their distress markedly increased, whereas most of the people in the most of the experiencers that were working with John Mack, he tested them and he said they're largely mentally sound, except for trauma symptoms that are very similar to those who experienced a sexual violation of some kind. And then, as we were talking about in the previous discussion question, uh, after some time when they uncovered those memories and were able to start fully processing them, which People throw that word around a lot. Processing, at least in the way that I use it in my school of psychology, is processing is when you kind of go through the event that happened to you and you allow yourself to experience the emotions that it is causing you and you begin to place it within the larger context of your life. Kind of like 
when data on Star Trek integrates new information into his operating system so that it can create new subroutines to deal with that new information. That's largely just what processing is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once they processed that information, they became markedly less distressed and markedly more functional, which, again, is the complete opposite of what happened to SRA experiencers. And I and again, it was just I'd been so thoroughly misled and that made me furious that it's like this was not a misrepresentation of data. People were actively lying about this research. Either that or they never looked deep enough into it to see a difference. They, yeah. they, they wrote it off the same thing the moment the word <clears throat> hypnotism was out there. And that that's actually that's probably that's probably more likely is just that, like you know, like people like my parents in their community, they didn't actually compare and contrast the research themselves. Uh, someone in the community, probably like someone closer to the source of the research saw it, studied it, dismissed it, started telling everyone in their community it's full of shit. And then it just sort of mitigated out from there. And it just and now it just permeates the American atheist movement that hypnotism is that hypnotism is mind control and none of this shit is worth even looking at, which that's not really a scientific approach, actually. Absolutely not. It's a religious approach. Yep. All right, so I think we're ready to move on to section three. Yes, we are. Okay. As Mac's work with abductees continued to evolve, his relationship with Sally was hitting an all-time low, due in part to his occasional use of psychedelics. Further complicating (laughs) matters was his new work into the abduction phenomenon, which Sally neither understood nor liked, as it was her home that Mac was inviting abductees into several times a week. You know, Sally had a bit of a point. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that Sally's still here is proof she's a trooper. (laughs) Uh, By this time, Roz had already left him for another. His nuclear protest group was suffering some internal turmoil, and his work with the abduction phenomenon was increasing in complexity to such a degree that Mac was beginning to question the very basic materialist paradigm on which his world was built. And in these chaotic times, he sought reprieve where he always had between a woman's legs. He met the young widow, I'm going to butcher this, Dominique Kalamanopoulos at a party, sparking off what is arguably his most important and most emotionally intimate affair. Two months after a trip to India to meet with the Dalai Lama to discuss the abduction phenomenon, Mac helped organize a conference on the topic at MIT. In attendance were a large number of academics, psychiatrists, UFO researchers such as Hopkins, and abductees. It was here that Mac laid out his case to the broader academic establishment, laying out his reasons for why he believed the abduction phenomenon could not be simply explained away as a matter of psychology. His most startling revelation, though, came from a poll that had been developed by Hopkins, working in conjunction with aerospace billionaire Bob Bigelow, which was designed to identify abduction victims without necessarily tipping the responder off to that fact. The poll results showed that roughly 2% of people, or 3.7 million Americans, were possible abduction victims. While there were some who left the conference impressed and perhaps even changed by the information, many others resisted his findings. 
to the mainstream academic community, Mac had taken a flying leap into the deep end. To many UFO researchers, he hadn't gone far enough, as both Jacques Vallée and Whitley Strieber believed. Vallée, believing that the abduction theory as a whole was not supported by the full body of evidence, and Strieber believing that Mac needed to focus less on how the experiences impacted the abductees and more on the experiences and high strangeness therein. Following the conference, Harvard left Mack to continue his research, despite growing misgivings among the academic community. His cause took a hit when Mack, Hopkins, and several of Mack's abductee patients showed up on the Jane Whitney show, where they were, in Mack's words, sandbagged and ridiculed. Soon, Mack found himself meeting with the dean of Harvard Medical, Daniel Tostason, who was growing increasingly uneasy with the press Mack was drawing. The meeting went nowhere, but the resistance to Mac's work was clearly on the rise. Amidst all this, Sally learned of his affair with Dominique and rendered an ultimatum that he must choose between them. He and Sally were officially separated in 1993, the same year his manuscript on the abduction phenomenon, now a full book titled Abductions, Human Encounters with Aliens, was released. In preparation for the release, Mac met with a media consultant who coached him on how to navigate hostile interviews, as it was already assumed that Mac's work would be derided once exposed to the light of day. It was also during this time that he was interviewed by the New York Times and later Psychology Today, who pressed Mac on the lack of physical evidence of the abduction phenomenon, to which Mac responded, You could say the phenomenon, by its very nature, is trying to get us off this pure reliance on physical artifacts and evidence for experiencing something as true. In February of 1994, Mac and Dominique traveled to Brazil to investigate the Antonio Villas Boas case, which we briefly discussed during our episode on Passport to Magonia. Uh, he had a good time down there. He met with a medium who claimed to practice black magic, interviewed some UFO witnesses, and even had his own spiritual experience where he realized that his current interest in the abduction phenomenon was rooted in his intense fear of being alone, likely caused by the loss of his mother. As the phenomenon showed, humanity was never alone. Little did he know, though, back home, a storm was brewing. But before we get there, we have our third discussion question. So throughout this book, we see Mac and the mainstream academic community routinely butting heads on the matter of physical evidence. Do you think that this represents a genuine hole in Mac's theories? Or as Mac suggested, does the phenomenon resist physicality by its nature? And if so, why? I lean much tor more towards the the latter of it. the the deeper I get, you know, half dragged, half willingly walking down this hole and this path. Um, I I am I am seeing more and more credence put into the idea that whatever the fuck this is that's happening it does not exist in the realm that we deem physical and i was honestly starting to get a little a little frustrated with the constant repetition of there's no physical evidence and mac going actually there is and he's right there was physical evidence like they said there was there was the scars and there was the fact that occasionally the people went missing and they'd come back and it's just like where are your clothes those are somebody else's clothes and it's like this is what they put me in before they sent me out of the ship i i don't think they can tell us apart too well like <laughs> and and the fact that there were several of the of the 
females that their doctors confirmed like, no, there's signs that there was a pregnancy that then became a miscarriage. And that's a little weird because that doesn't that doesn't track with the rest of her medical history. But also, I I've come we've complained about this before as a group of this this obsession with physical evidence that goes beyond just that that goes just beyond normal evidence because these people are dismissing like the burnt circles in the grass and the scarring and all of this other shit they're saying well that's not physical evidence like are you sure because it's made of matter and it's sitting in front of you and it's evidence of this story this person is telling and what they're really actually saying is a combination of I don't believe you because I refuse to believe you and I will not believe you until you can hand me a dead alien. Right. It's very similar to the uh, Bigfoot researchers that I see every now and then saying, well, the only way that we'll ever prove Bigfoot is if we shoot Bigfoot. (laughs) When did we get to the point where witness testimony was bullshit? Well, I mean, here's the thing is, I mean, even Ralph Blumenthal brings this up in the book. Uh, it is not bullshit in a court of law. Right. It is bullshit in a court of science. And that for for no re- real good reason other than, uh, as Avi Loeb said, humans are an imperfect sensor. Um, and sure. But but when you have this many people. Right. And, and that's the thing is, well, let's say you you have two hundred and fifty thousand abductee cases. One of them has to be a genuine abduction event for there to be alien abductions like right. and and so statistically it's kind of insane to say they're all liars or they're all mistaken yeah uh yeah that was that that was that was just my that was the basic summary of my of my stance on that is i understand that it's frustrating and it would be fantastic to have a dead alien i i guess if we want to string it up like a shark in the movie jaws and be like look at it (laughs) and everyone can come take fucking pictures with their kids you know that's totally not gonna start off a very awkward interplanetary war um but yeah, I, I, it, it's 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 a shortfall because we're not at a point where humans can accept the fact that there might be dimensions other than physical happening around them, and that if there are dimensions other than physical, then maybe certain phenomenons not going to leave physical evidence while leaving behind emotional and psychological evidence. And we just can't we just because it defies the physical, we can't accept the emotional and mental evidence. And so, no, I don't I don't think it's a hole in Max theory. I think it's an unavoidable problem, which is I mean, this is something I know you two have heard me say before is I'd be very curious to see how the mainstream scientific establishment would grapple with a problem that by its nature is, say, spiritual, or it is something that that cannot exist within the the rough framework of physical reality that we we you know we exist in. I don't think that it has a way of dealing with it other than inventing a new science, right? Like uh, John Tenney was saying on our interview regarding consciousness. But at the same time, if what we're dealing with here is truly something that, say 
our brains can't even process what we're looking at. That's why some people see glowing raccoons or flying circus tents or stuff. Then how could we possibly uh, come, kind of gather scientific proof of what is innately a mental spiritual experience? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think, I think, I think it's kind of a little bit of both here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the phenomenon innately resists physicality. Okay. Because we have all of these stories of all of these things happening throughout time. And yet we have very little evidence to show of it. Okay. And that's saying things like anything from ghosts to aliens because the phenomenon as a whole, the John Keel phenomenon, right? The John, the John Keel phenomenon, right? And then we also have a long history of believing in all of these things that are supernatural in, in, in their nature, like gods, like, you know, anything religious. Okay. And yet we still don't have much in the way of physical evidence. We have no physical evidence of, of most religions. And yet people believe that without a shadow of a doubt half the time. However, to the point of most scientists, sure, there isn't a lot of physical evidence in the way of abductions. But that is, if we are assuming that the abductions were 100% physical. Right. I mean, and I mean, some of the abduction cases brought up in this book, uh, the person experienced the abduction event while someone was looking at their body laying in the bed the whole time. Their body didn't move. Mm-hmm. They were taken out of their bodies by some sort of astral spiritual entity that looked like aliens that took him into a UFO and did the typical abduction thing, but entirely as part of an out-of-body experience. Conversely, we also have abductions where the people did go missing for a time. And, and I think, like we've said many a times, I think there's multiple things at play here. Oh, yeah. But ultimately, I think the one thing that seems to be parallel amongst them all is I think that there is... There's another layer to all of this, and that's that I don't know if it's like, I don't know if it's a consciousness thing. I don't know if it's a parallel universe or not parallel, an alternate universe thing, but there is some other thing, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that, that's happening. Like there, it, because, because there has to be. When it when it comes to this, I I don't know if it's like that they are on a different frequency than we are. I don't know if they just aren't physical in some in some cases. I I, I don't know. I, but I, how do you get the how do you get the physical? Like how do you get physical material evidence of something that is innately not? Yeah, uh, you you don't, and that's the issue. Is it sticks you? I mean, it's think about the experiencer point of view. You are told. This didn't happen to you. You know it happened to you. But the the problem you're in is that there is literally no evidence you could provide that would satisfy a hardened skeptic or even just a casual skeptic. Try telling an evangelical that when they speak in tongues, that it's bullshit. Yeah. They're oh. not going to believe you. Also, I, I just want to point out, I'm really glad that after 14 episodes of the show, we have finally gotten to the point that we understand there's a thing. <laughs> you, sh- you shut your goddamn mouth. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, 
you got me to believe in aliens of all things. Go sell, accept, no question. Aliens, that's bullshit. But I've accepted them now. So take take the win. Take yeah, the win no, of take my win. hypocrisy, diminishing I, piece I by mean, piece. But that, that said, I mean, we say aliens and we've repeated it several times. But as we've talked about several times on the show and go back to Passport to Magonia, we don't actually know what we're talking about with that. I mean, no yeah. one does. We don't know if they're aliens or fair folk or gods or if there's even a difference between those words. True. We, we don't have... What that represents, what the phenomenon represents is, to me, uh, evidence that we are completely wrong about the nature of our reality. And if that doesn't fill you with either existential dread or um, curiosity, then you're not paying attention very closely. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're ready for part four. I think that was a we uh, answered that pretty well. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Part four. Um, which I, I I titled The Witch Hunt. That's what it was. The New York Times article titled A Man from Outer Space was released, and it spelled bad news for Mac. The article painted Mac as a gullible, sex-starved fool and only emphasized the sexual components of the abduction phenomenon. The author, Vietnam War veteran James Wilworth, had even managed to track down one of Mac's former patients before ever meeting Mac, a woman named Donna Lee Bassett, who admitted to faking her entire abduction memory in order to pull one over on John Mac for largely unknown reasons. Woolworth would later admit that he had approached the article under the assumption that abductees were all madmen and attention-seeking charlatans, and that he believed Mac was using his work and hypnosis techniques to amass a harem of vulnerable women for his own predatory desires. Next, Mac appeared on The Oprah Show alongside several of his abductee patients. Oprah interviewed them about their experiences and then brought out known skeptic and professor of psychology Nicholas Spanos, who asserted that all abduction experiences were sleep paralysis combined with memories implanted by overenthusiastic hypnotists, which the experiencers on stage reacted to in a predictably negative fashion, to say the least. It was on the same show that Mac made a plea for basic human empathy for the abduction victims. Quote, why is it every other culture in the history of the human race has believed that there were other entities, other intelligences in the universe? Why are we so goofy about this? Why do we treat people like they're crazy and humiliate them if they are experiencing some other entities, some other intelligence that's coming across? See? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, the hits kept coming. An article in the New Republic likened Mac to wrestling fans who are too sucked into the action to remember it's all fake fun. It also noted that the ecological concerns reported by many abductees was in line with Mac's work in anti-nuclear activism, suggesting a clear political motive behind Mac's claims. Sensing that it was time to clear the air at Harvard, Max set up a meeting with the executive dean for academic programs, James Adelstein. However, as soon as he arrived, he was informed that in light of the accusations in the Times, Harvard would be launching an official secret review of his work to determine if he was causing harm to his patients and if his research was up to the standards and ethics of Harvard University. As Mac standards and ethics. <laughs> you used to drug people with LSD just to see what they would do. Standards and ethics. As those, Mac are, left, those, are, those are in quotations. <laughs> as Mac left, Adelstein also commented that Mac wouldn't be in the situation if he just said he discovered a new psychiatric syndrome. 
Freudian cover up. Despite promises that the review would not be an inquisition, that's pretty much exactly what it was. The review board, led by committee chairman Arnold Relman, grilled Mac for hours regarding his work. And despite assurances that this review had nothing to do with the reality of UFOs or abductions, continually tried to corner Mac into admitting that it could all be psychological in nature. They also questioned if Mac had ever done any actual good for his patients, to which Mac answered in the affirmative. In fact, while reliving mundane traumatic experiences such as rape or assault tended to damage a patient's mental well-being, most abductees reported greater peace and contentment after their experiences were brought to light. Hearing of the panel, Mac's nephew insisted he get legal representation, recognizing this as the kangaroo court that it was. And Mac did reach out to his law firm, Hill and Barlow, who advised him to cooperate fully with the review. Over the next several sessions, the panel continued to grill Mac on why he had accepted the reality of abductions instead of working towards a more conventional explanation. Mac responded that there simply were no conventional explanations. They interviewed his colleagues, many of whom defended Mac's work and character, though there were some skeptics who took it as an opportunity to unload criticism on Mac, deserved and otherwise. Even his experiencers were brought in, and most of them asserted that they wanted there to be an explanation other than aliens, but the facts were what they were, uh, which is something they also said quite a bit on the Oprah show. We watched some of the segments, Jay and I. At the urging of an old friend from his Air Force days, Mac reached out to a young up-and-coming Harvard-trained lawyer by the name of Danny Sheehan, who you might know as the guy who currently represents Luis Elizondo, and he's been heavily involved in litigation surrounding the UFO phenomenon for decades. Uh, Sheehan had previously worked the case for the Watergate scandal, the Iran-Contra scandal, and other high-profile suits against the U.S. government. As soon as she had heard Mac's story, he had Mac fire his attorneys at Hill and Barlow in sense that they would give Mac such obviously terrible advice. To aid in their work, she had brought on another young activist attorney, Eric McClesh, who had previously had success representing molestation victims suing the Catholic Church. Sheehan, ever the legal bulldog, outlined a hyper-aggressive 20-page litigation strategy in which he compared Mac to Darwin and Galileo, both of whom were derided by the mainstream academic establishment until their theories were found to hold water, and that the Harvard Institute was trying to silence a challenge to the Newtonian-Cartesian scientific materialist paradigm upon which the university rested. The document ended with an entirely unsubtle threat to take these proceedings public and bring civil and legal lawsuits against Harvard. I think Sheehan might be the single most confident human being I have ever heard about. Every time Sheehan came up on the page, I was smiling. He was great. Uh, With Sheehan and McClush in tow, Mac returned to the panel. Relman and company were immediately put off by Sheehan and the sudden change in strategy on the part of the Mac team. Growing so flustered, he even admitted that the question of the reality of UFOs was central to the panel's inquiries, despite earlier claims that this process was only regarding Mac's methodologies. I don't care for Relman, and you can quote me on that. (laughs) 
<laughs> in the end, the panel conducted 27 sessions over the course of a year, during which Mac did little else save for a quick trip to Africa to interview children at the Zimbabwe Aerial School, where a UFO landing and craft occupant were seen by an entire playground of children. And that was probably my favorite story in the book. That's a great case. It's a it's an amazing UFO oh, uh, case. It was so cool. It, it's honest to God, one of my favorite uh, favorites. And I love that those all 60 of those children have remained unshakable to this day you ask them about it now and they're like yeah that happened why do you keep asking me like the answer is going to be different (laughs) eventually the committee's draft report was released by the panel while it suggested no immediate action against mac they left the option of sanctioning him to the deans furthermore the report asserted that most if not all ufo sightings and experiencer stories were mistakes or fraudulent in nature and lambasted mac for his failure to produce either physical evidence or a conventional explanation for the phenomenon in other words while his work was not immoral or illegal it was unscholarly and worse unscientific and when he read the draft, Sheehan was pissed. To say the fucking <laughs> least. Outraged, especially by the clear doublespeak of not bringing any action against Mac, yet laying all the groundwork necessary for one of the deans to do it for them. Further complicating matters, Relman had recently been appointed to the Massachusetts Board of Registration and Medicine, a group responsible for licensing and punishing physicians. In other words, he could not act as both prosecutor and judge. Conflict of interest? What's that? I'm from Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> She had a team set back an 80 page rebuttal, twice the length of the panel's draft, which called the panel's ethics into question, calling them, quote, morally sullied. Just reading the report made him feel like a sewer worker, Sheehan said, quote, it was necessary for me to come up periodically, as it were, to bathe and cleanse myself. My God. <laughs> Sheehan laboriously countered each of the claims levied at Mac, citing experiencer testimonials and a lifetime of academic colleagues who endorsed Mac. Harvard responded by threatening a separate inquiry into how Mac financed his works if he didn't relent, uh, which was largely through donations from the UFO interested Lawrence Rockefeller. Sheehan, openly accusing them of holding a witch hunt, sent a letter to potential supporters seeking more voices to throw against Harvard. Predictably, however, his letter was leaked to the Internet. Mac, who had wanted the inquiry kept quiet, felt he had no recourse but to fire Sheehan. However, Sheehan's work was already done, and his plan sort of worked. The press was ablaze with criticism for Harvard and the panel, accusing them, justifiably in my book, of academic censorship. Despite all this, the final report released by the panel was much the same as the draft had been, ignoring every defense Mac and team had raised in favor of quietly sweeping it all under the rug. By the end of July, Mac was called back in to meet with Deans Todeston and Adelstein, who didn't punish him, but indicated that they wanted to work more closely with him to protect himself and the university better in the future. In a statement, they indicated as such, adding that Mac was free to continue his research. Exhausted from the ordeal, Mac later traveled alone to Brazil, where he investigated the Virginia UFO crash and then went on a trip to the Amazon to do ayahuasca. Naturally. During his trip... He reported seeing geometric crystals and fantastic creatures, along with a strange vision of the ancient gods, all squeezed into a long trough waiting for humanity to call them back. This experience would lead to more and eventually a new and final frontier for him to explore. Before we get there, we have our fourth discussion question. Ooh. 
So let's talk about the academic establishment's reaction to John Mack. Do you believe that there was any justification for the Harvard panel review? And do you think in a university setting, topics such as alien abduction and anomalous research merit closer overview and scrutiny than more commonly accepted topics? I think there was little to no justification for that Harvard review. Yeah. And I think that there needs to be more research done into these anomalous topics like UFOs, aliens, ghosts, whatever the fuck. Everything that we talk about on this show and more. Do you think so? Not just more research. Do you think that any research into this merits more overview from, I guess, the powers that be? Or should it be treated more like any other academic uh, inquiry? Well, um, when a... I don't know, uh, another scientist is exploring something that is effectively unknown, but isn't necessarily, uh, I don't know, weird. Do they, do they, do they pour over all of it? Do they pour over all of their work? Probably not unless they were, you know, doing something to harm other people. So no, I don't think there's a reason for them to give any kind of oversight. If they're not harming anybody, if they're not, if, if if the patients aren't coming back and saying he's abusing me or he's just trying to sleep with me, I, there's no reason for that. And repeatedly throughout the process here, um, the people, the, the experiencers said that they wanted it to not be aliens. They wanted anything else. Mm-hmm. And still, you know, that, that wasn't the case. So no, I don't think there needs to be any uh, addition, any kind of overview scrutiny. Sure. There, there, there should, there should always be some. And peer review exists. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that they brought up, I don't, I don't remember if you said it in the summary was they, they, they like fucking hosed Mac for not having his, uh, not having any of his research peer reviewed, but he tried, yeah. he tried to get it peer reviewed and everybody said no. Uh, actually, the journal that the committee chairman, Relman, managed, uh, I think he he managed and was head editor of it, yeah. had rejected doing any sort of peer review on Mac's work twice. Yes. Yes. They so, sent it back to him with the envelope unopened. The second time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the first time they were like, fuck no. The second time they didn't even bother reading it. Yeah. No, I the whole thing like that whole that whole thing was like Relman's fucking trying to throw his fucking dick around like that was that was that was it he didn't he doesn't like this shit so he didn't want it to happen anymore honestly my read on the situation it was it wasn't just relman it was harvard growing increase the harvard brass growing increasingly uneasy but not having a reason to go after mac and the times article gave them a reason and so relman was probably given the task of find a reason that we can get rid of him oh absolutely and he was more than on board to do it. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, and Relman, even years later, after Mac had been you know, exonerated and actually took Relman's advice and put together this interdisciplinary team to mm-hmm. look at the phenomenon, uh, he wasn't satisfied because his advice to Mac was, you know, get more scientists involved. So Mac held a conference where he also brought in abductees and they all talked together. And Relman's response was, you shouldn't have involved the abductees. It confused matters. How are you supposed to do this without them? Yeah, they're the subject matter. (laughs) You fucking moron. I I think it's more just put those people back under the rug where they belong. Yeah, he doesn't want his noble Harvard-ness 
you know, uh, sullied with alien abductions. Right, fucking some, temple to uh, Western mediocrity. I'll say this. As someone who has worked in higher academic establishments, um, the whole Ivy League thing is largely uh, bullshit. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they don't offer any higher quality education anywhere else. What they do offer... Prestige. It, well, it's not just prestige. They offer in, an incredibly potent tool and probably the mo- more important than education in terms of getting ahead in, in modern Western society, which is the chance to network with incredibly powerful people. Right. And that that's what they are, is they're, they exist for that networking. Because the education is... Okay, like it's good. It, it's it's a good college education. I'm not I'm not saying they're not, and I'm not saying that Harvard hasn't produced great thinkers. But that's not the norm. Like it's not the norm for Central Michigan University to produce Nobel laureates. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh. Did Did you have more? Um. Okay. So, where was I? Uh, Harvard's a temple to Western mediocrity. Uh, Donna Bassett is a pathological attention seeker and compulsive shitster who should not be believed under any circumstances. Uh, and, uh, Harvard is pathetic, which I feel like is related to my third, my first point, but I wanted to say it again. Um, okay, sorry. Getting to your actual question. Um, in theory, the panel was good. Because there were possible accusations of, hey, are we about to have another satanic panic on our hands because there's a guy using hypnotherapy while interacting with people who are showing signs of possibly being sexual assault victims? We should look into that. But as as Rory was uh was saying it very quickly became clear that that's not actually why they were there relman even blurted out of course it's relevant when asked about well is it relevant if ufos are real or not and i i think that they were just trying to silence mac because they didn't want to deal with it especially because you know when uh, when Sheehan uh, got, you know, Sheehan confident again and was like, fuck you for the following reasons. And they said, oh, fuck us. Fuck us. How about we start looking into your finances? Huh? And I'm like, that's not how you should be responding in this situation is you told him stop investigating UFOs. And he said, I'd rather not, actually. And you're like, then let's figure out how your money's dirty. Like that's yeah, that definitely had the tone of a threat to me when yeah. that came up. Yeah, that they started to lose control of the situation, and so they started threatening a separate inquiry if he didn't what let himself get bullied in the first inquiry. Yeah, and so while the panel in theory was good, and I think that I think that there absolutely needs to be oversight with scientific experimentation, just because you know there's been a long long history of if you don't supervise these people with neutral bodies, they're just going to straight up start torturing their subjects because I don't know. Science. (laughs) Science. And the darker tendencies of human nature. Woo. (laughs) And and I just want to clarify, when I say I I do believe that there needs to be oversight. I just don't think there needs to be extra oversight for for the anomalous topics. I I figured that's what you meant. I didn't figure you meant. No, no, no. Every every other field oversight. This none. (laughs) I I wanted I wanted to clarify myself just before you know 
you know, what are you doing in there? Thinking I'm fucking like, what, what are you doing in there, Jim? Shoving demons into a kid. Good, good science. <laughs> good science. Give him like a little treat. Good science. <laughs> it's, just, it's just it's just a little candy bar, like one of the bite sized ones. It's not even a full size candy bar. He, he, yeah, doesn't, he, he doesn't unwrap it. He just swallows it. He just it, eats like, it wrapper and all. Tin and all. Just, uh, for my uh, for my my dissertation, I have discovered that the average human boy can contain twenty three demons. Oh, oh <laughs> how many demons can the average human girl contain? Or did you not get that far? I didn't get that far. Well, let's extend your grant. Okay, well, <laughs> let's extend your grant. I'm going to need at least 23 <laughs> demons. <laughs> That's okay. Just check Harvard. Oh. There's nothing but demons there. I remember the LSD experiments. Not personally. Or do I? You don't know how old I am, Harvard. You've never done LSD. I haven't. Yeah, I'm I feel like, Jay, if you had done LSD, we'd know about it by now. Uh, Yeah, probably. Uh, cause I'd still be tripping off of one hit because that's my fucking luck. Also, you don't hide much. I don't. You're a pretty open book. I am. It's a problem. Yeah. Like sometimes you'll just burst into my office with not even information about a book we're reading, just information, just a tidbit that you need to share. And then you walk back out. It's like being visited by the Wikipedia fairy. (laughs) It's because it's because Jay can't hold all the knowledge all the time. So therefore, they have to share it with somebody. Someone must share this burden. No, that's exactly. Why do you think I keep telling people about the Freudian cover up? It was in my head. Now it's in yours. Why do you Why do you think that they married me? It's so that I can hold all this information, which is why I get into debates with people about DC, about DC characters I've never read about. <laughs> and sometimes I can tell that you're tempted at the office of like, you know what, let me just call my spouse and he can explain this to you because yeah. he's actually read the comic in question. I've just heard about it from six different academic angles. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so oversight is good. Oversight, I would go so far as to say, is necessary to ensure that these subjects are being treated with respect and care. But this did come across much more as academic censorship because they weren't they weren't actually talking about his methods and the safeties of safety of his subjects. They seem to just be constantly circling back to but why are you doing this? And why won't that they see that they got to a point where they were like just say it's psychological. We don't care what you do. We don't care who you talk to. We don't care about any of that. We just need you to say that these people are delusional and then you can go back to your fucking ayahuasca hut and do whatever you want. But you just need to say that your abductees are crazy. And when he went, no, they got angrier and angrier and kept escalating the situation. And that does not seem rational, measured or coming from a point of concern. That seems like the temple to Western mediocrity attempting to desperately maintain its reputation it's the same it's like we were saying earlier it's they there was this weird you know there's this stigma around the idea of abductions and for whatever reason harvard didn't you know the harvard deans and people they don't they didn't want themselves associated with the dirty abductions yeah. so therefore make it psychological do anything to manipulate the science so that we can be clear of this or 
or and I, I know this is probably hard to imagine, but or you could fund this and um, I don't know, be the first ones to make way on it and like spearhead it. But instead, you want to drop the ball and fucking make Mac lie. Yeah. Uh, and I like I said, I think that uh, Danny Sheehan hit the nail on the head. I think to a degree, if they entertain what Mac is saying, that is a doorway to having to entertain a whole lot of other things that challenge the very basic, I guess, scientific principles that they viewed their whole world built upon. The light bulb <laughs> challenged our fucking view of the world. And I, we didn't. And, you know, I, I just I can't. I can't I can't wrap my mind around that. Like we want to advance. Right. I, there were people who uh, protested the use of electric lighting. Well, yeah. sure. Uh, <laughs> people protested the invention of the written word because they're like not having to memorize the epics of our ancestors will make our memory bad and our children disobedient. Because, and- yeah, people are innately opposed to change. And I get that. But also like. You're an academic society. You should be spearheading this kind of shit. I, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> just I, I'm worried about the murder in your eyes right oh, now. God. <laughs> it's just it it drives me nuts. Yeah, it's it, and, and to, to, to just wrap up the second part of your question. I look, obviously, there's experiments you shouldn't conduct like, hey, what happened if we took this dog and tied it to an elephant? Like and no, sorry, like what if we took this dog and sewed it to an elephant to the kidney or like what if we just took this person's lungs out and then just like watch what happens oh they died bring in the next one take out the lungs see if they die like don't do shit like that obviously but no i yeah, don't, don't think get, don't go mengala yeah don't <laughs> don't just start doing random shit because you're bored uh but i don't think that even within like a university setting i don't think that any realm of study should be forbidden in and of itself just because i don't understand what the point of that is yep of it's like well we're we're worried about it causing a panic we're worried about people misusing the research we're worried about x y and z and then it's like then let's go back to the first part of the question and supervise your damn people and also, at a certain point, if someone starts studying the psychology of Nazis in Germany and that turns them into a Nazi, they're going to be a Nazi regardless. <laughs> That's right? not you, you don't you don't burn every copy of Mein Kampf because you're worried about what's going to happen if people read it. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think my only comment I want to make uh, before we move into our final section here. Is that entire section of the book, the entire Harvard panel, it takes up several chapters. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a long saga that you see Mac getting dragged through. Um, and every time I started a new chapter, I, I the first time I saw Relman's name, the, the committee chairman, the first words and my first thoughts that came to my brain was, hello, Relman, are you going to be a bag of dicks today? Indeed you are. He uh, never let me down. He was consistently a bag of dicks from beginning to end. I, I, I ended up listening to like I had both the audiobook and the Kindle version of this. I ended up listening to most of the book. And I'm not going to lie to you. Ev- throughout most of the time that I was listening to the Harvard, like to the Harvard panel sections of the book, I was like white knuckle gripping in my steering wheel when I was driving just in rage. But- I... 
not not relevant, but when I read what Donna Bassett did, just because as far as I can tell, she was bored. I, as Nick put it, crammered into his office while he was actually putting the final touches on the summary for this episode. I just crammered into his office. And I think what I said verbatim was, wow, so Donna Bass is a real piece of shit, huh? I just... I legitimately believe that she was just that type of person where she was addicted to causing drama and she saw a way to cause drama in the lives of famous people because she also she also apparently was bothering Whitley Schreiber and telling him like, oh, yeah, I totally got abducted by like these little gray things. Yeah, totally. And like, I don't think she knows what the fucking truth is at this point. I think she's just going to she's just going to let whatever's going to cause the most grief for people around her to just fall out of her stupid mouth whenever the thought passes through her stupid you, you know what honestly occurred to me and this is I think I'm just gonna put this thought out there and then we're gonna move into part into part five here um I thought my read on her was she came forward to Mac she she had remembered an abduction experience but then she didn't want that to be a truth anymore. And so she went out of her way to kind of, you know, she finds this guy who's writing a New York Times article. She makes this big deal about how she faked it, gives very nebulous reasons about why she would do something like that outside of like, oh, well, I I study this stuff to fool ufologists. It's like, there's no reason to do that. Yeah. Uh, you're not going after the, you know, the crust of society. Yeah. Um, I think that she that what we were seeing was her trying to sort of uh, assert assert her own reality in a sense of saying, well, if I make sure that everyone thinks this is fake, it didn't happen to me. Yep. I had a very similar read that that was my read on her. Uh, But anyway, we're going to go into chat into not chapter five. We're going to go into section five. Death (laughs) and die. Yeah, I I titled the sections this time because I felt very extra. Yeah, you are. One of the biggest signs of Max's shifting understanding of the abduction phenomenon can be found in his 1997 debate with Bud Hopkins. Both agreed that the experiences were, at least partly, physical in nature and were generally traumatic for most abductees. Where they deferred, however, was on the more spiritual aspects of the phenomenon. Mac argued that, in addition to trauma, the abduction experience had other quantifiable effects which could not be ignored, including experiences involving telepathic communication, feelings of spiritual oneness, religious visions, and even a few who felt a deep and intimate bond with their abductors. Furthermore, Max suggested that the abduction phenomenon may not exist in physical space as we know it, but somewhere between, a liminal state between reality and unreality, a sort of living dream that temporarily invades our mundane existence. Sound familiar? In 1991, Mack released the sequel to his earlier book on the abduction topic, this one titled Cosmos, Human Transformations and Alien Encounters, a book which Mack believed was the most important thing he'd ever written. Within its pages, he focused on the metaphysics of the phenomenon, the vibrational stages of our reality, and interdimensionality as potential components of the mystery. 
He hypothesized that the interactions with the others were not what they appeared, but rather they were attempts by another intelligence to change our species by increasing our level of consciousness and, in turn, our vibratory rate. To support this, he cited the anti-nuclear and ecological ideologies impressed upon abductees, drawing parallels between those experiences and the experiences from the historical record of visits from God, angels, fairies, or the Native American Great Spirit. As the book released, he prepared for another round of criticism. Instead, he found that the media's response to his latest and most important foray into the world of abductions was met only with resounding silence. Mac drifted from view for a time until two years later in 2001, a phone conversation with his friend, film actress Shirley MacLaine, stirred his interest in the afterlife. McLean, long interested in both UFOs and death, claimed to have recovered memories of a past life in Atlantis, or Lemuria, where she lived as an androgynous, lumescent being with a crystal body. Mac related this to some of the reported experiences of his abductees, who claimed memories of a time between reincarnations, during which they had agreed to come to Earth to help enlighten it. Mac had even had to coach several patients away from suicide after these revelations as their desire to, quote, return home became an ever-present thought in their minds. Later that year, Dominique and Mac officially ended things on good terms, though Mac refused her offer of friendship, indicating that he could never see her as less than his love. And when she moved out, an abductee named Karen Austin moved in, though this relationship was reportedly entirely platonic. Now alone and growing older, Mac began to think more deeply on the afterlife, eventually leading him to work with psychic and spiritual guru Mark Cummings to write a story about Cummings' wife, Elizabeth Targ, a brain researcher and daughter of the famous psychic Russell Targ. Targ had died of stage four brain cancer and supposedly had managed to reach out to Cummings and their friends from beyond the grave. Mac would go on to consume many books on hauntings, searching for evidence of the afterlife. In July of 2004, Mac attended the 10th annual Newport Alien Festival in England, where he had gone to investigate crop circles. In a bit of ominous foreshadowing, he was heard to say to several other attendees, quote, you never know when it will be your time. We could all go anytime. I could walk out on the street and get hit by a car. Mac spent the next few years in quiet research when not continuing his peace initiatives in the Middle East or canvassing for John Kerry's presidential bid. He really hated Bush. Really, really hated Bush. It warmed my dead little heart. He also made plans to attend a conference in London on T.E. Lawrence the coming September. Just before leaving, Mac and his peer research team enacted a small ritual they had often played for fun, in which participants would draw Nordic runes from a bag and try to decipher their meaning. Mac drew the blank rune that day, representing death. Mac laughed it off, remarking, Sometimes I think it would be a lot easier for me to do this work from the other side. Mac's appearance at the conference was a huge success, and afterwards, Mac went for a dinner meeting with financial consultants interested in helping alleviate some of the funding concerns he had for his center. He left the meeting around 11, and rather than call his host Victoria Keene for a ride, decided it was a lovely night for a walk. As he was stepping out of the tube station and out onto the street, he entered the path of a drunk computer systems manager, Raymond Tchaikovsky. Raymond had just come from a volunteer opportunity making paper flowers to sell in support of veterans. He slammed on the brakes, but it was too late. 
Mac was reported to have said little at the scene, only to grab a firefighter's leg and say, please help me. He was rushed to Barnett General Hospital and was pronounced dead at 1220 a.m. on September 28, 2004. He had broken his tibia, fractured his spine, several ribs, and suffered a catastrophic lung injury. After that, word and heartbreak traveled fast. No sooner had he died than the strangeness surrounding John Mack reared its head. Keen was sitting with the body in the morgue when she reportedly heard Mack's voice behind her remark, I never knew it would be so easy. With the Mack family's permission, she held a seance two days later, during which she claimed Mack came through. He said that he had felt no pain, and he had been given the choice to stay or go, and chose to go when he saw his own ruined body. A small funeral was held in London with Mack's England friends and the Mack's, after which he was cremated and his ashes brought home to Harvard. On November 13th, 2004, hundreds packed into Harvard's Memorial Church for a service led by a local, popular, gay, black Baptist minister and professor of the Divinity School, Reverend Peter J. Gomes. The service included a long procession of Mac's loved ones and peers, giving Mac a heartfelt send-off for the work he had done and the paths he had blazed into the unknown. Perhaps the most heartbreaking speeches coming from Mac's son, Kenny, who apologized for crying as he spoke, and Karen Austin, who broke down and nearly collapsed as she told the audience what Mac had meant to her and people like her. As she said, just by doing her the honor of believing her, he had changed her life. However, it was Reverend Gomes who had the final say, quote, the transition from this life to the next is a great mystery of which we know nothing and which John Mack now knows everything. To quote the epilogue, quote, John Mack's journey, heroic, imperfect and human ends here. But in another reality, if there is such a thing, it took some further twists and turns. I'm not saying this part happened, but it is, as folklorist Eddie Bullard would say, a story people tell. And it was a story of contact. In October 2004, a month after his death, friend Barbara Lamb was visiting her daughter in San Diego when she woke struggling to breathe due to severe allergies. Just as she began to panic, she heard Max's voice say, don't worry, Barbara, you will be OK. You will get through this. Later, a medium approached Lamb with a message from Mac, giving her permission to go forward with a lecture tour she and Mac had been planning before his death. The message included a detailed description of where to find the relevant notes in his office, which were found exactly where the medium said they would be. Later, another medium who knew Mac reported hearing him say, It was not what we thought. If he meant death, abductions, or the universe, we may never know until we, too, join him on the other side. Uh, before we get to our last discussion question, I just wanted to share a bit from the epilogue uh, that, to me, uh, not only sums up uh, Mac's life very well, but also speaks to the incredible prose in this book. Quote, Mac would have had issues with the title of this book. He insisted that he was never what people called a believer. He was only following a trail of overwhelmingly powerful anecdotal evidence, the kind of eyewitness testimony that gets people convicted in court and executed. Yet I believe he believed. He believed in earthly justice and the unquenchable human spirit and in an infant and benign cosmic intelligence. He believed in taking risks and breaking boundaries to boldly explore the deepest secrets of existence, which no one had yet come close to fathoming. 
Never mind aliens. As the pioneering transpersonal psychiatrist Stanislav Grof said, where did this table and chair and everything else come from? John Mack set forth, journeyed far, had many adventures, and returned to tell the tale. And with that, we get to our final discussion question. The last question I have is perhaps my most important. What did we learn from the life of John Mack? Are there any larger lessons we can glean from his experiences about the world or the phenomenon? Well, first off, I just want to I just want to say that the latter half of this book was phenomenal. Yeah. Amazing. It was so well written and the epilogue, like especially the the parts where Ralph Blumenthal was writing as himself talking about it, Mm -hmm. like powerful, Mm -hmm. like that little snippet that you picked probably the best bits, the best bit of it right there. But, Man, like I got the chills listening to your summary of it again, just thinking about it all because it was so, it was so well written and, and you could tell there's a lot of passion in it. Yeah. I mean, uh, Ralph Blumenthal, this book took him 16 years to write. Yep, he's he's been working on it that long. So, to answer your question, what did I learn about the life of John Mack? Well, I think you said it well in your summary. And that's what Karen Austin said about him. Just by doing her the honor of believing her, he changed her life. And we can all, every single one of us, take that to heart. We've said it this whole episode, and I actually didn't know that this was the, I I forgot that this was like the last question. So I wasn't teeing myself up. But like. I believe you. You don't think that far ahead. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But like empathy. it's overwhelming from everything that I like, cause I watched the, I watched the John Matt, the documentary that John Mack had a part in making and was in, and I've watched some of his lectures and everything. It's like empathy was a defining trait of his. And honestly, you don't really hear as weird as it is. You don't hear about that a lot with psychiatrists. No, you know, they're there for most of the, the science part, you know, But I think the biggest thing that I, my biggest takeaway from this book is kind of what you always say, you know, entertain everything Mm -hmm. because ultimately we don't, we don't know and pretending like we do know and pretending like the way that we think now is the only way to think is it's, it's stupid. Like, it's, it, it's, it, there's no room for growth. There's no room for us to become better people there. I, I, I have spent the last 10 plus years of my life trying to do everything I can to be better. Right. And I still want to be better and seeing somebody like, or reading about somebody like John Mack, who he had a pretty, he had a pretty good life. You know, and he still took blows and he and he fought fucking hard for people that nobody else were, was fighting for. And that's that regardless of the rest of his flaws and by God, he had flaws. Oh, yeah. That that alone is fucking huge to me. You know, and I I think 
ultimately outside of outside of the phenomenon if if anybody was to read this book it would just be interesting to them to see somebody who came from so far outside of this world to get pulled so far into this world and do it without breaking a sweat and fucking do it well like you know and one thing you you said there which also just speaks to how well the book is written this is one of the only books we've covered that i would you know, like I, people who are not interested in this kind of stuff, I'd recommend it to them. Absolutely. Uh, it is the, it is one of the best biographies I've ever read in my life, period. It's, it's so good. <laughs> like from start to finish, <laughs> like as someone, it's so good. As someone who writes, it pissed me off a bit. Cause <laughs> I was, you know, that usual, uh, jealous infuriation. God yeah. damn you. How dare you be so talented? <laughs> I just, I don't know. The, the, the book itself blew me away and ultimately it made me become a, like I'm already an open-minded person and I can honestly say that the book made it easier for me to be even more open-minded when it comes to the abduction phenomenon, just because it's kind of like the, if John Mack can do it, I can too. Yeah. You know, he was a very human person. Right. Exactly. And like even the way that he talks about it, like in some of his interviews and uh, like in lectures and and whatever else, he's so he's almost nonchalant about the way that he talks about a lot of this stuff. He's honestly not a very good public speaker. No, um, but he he comes off so human during it that it's like okay, you're no different than me. Just maybe a little bit smarter sometimes. There, you know? there is a certain. I will say this. It's very soothing to listen to him. Like uh, you, uh, Rory came back from work and we were all just sitting in silence of the living room uh, watching a John Mack lecture from two years before he died. We all just didn't exchange a single word. We were all just immediately sucked into his doleful gaze. Yeah. Uncle John. (laughs) (laughs) Though that 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 brings me. So one thing that I thought about and I want. And I, I, I want to bring it up on the show. I didn't bring it up before because I want to bring it up on the show. But something that I want to try, and I don't want us to do it here because I know that uh, your now wife will not be okay with it. I want us to perform a seance and try and, and, try and get John Mack. Because I think if there's anybody that we now feel probably, at least I know I do, feel an attachment to, to him, I think we might be able to actually do something out of it. We've got the equipment. I... I'm fine with that. But like you said, it cannot be here. No, I know. For well, my, ver- my, my very beautiful and very scared wife will yeah. not allow it. No, we'll go to a hotel or something. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh god now that's you know i both some people sneak away from their marriages to hotels for affairs i'm sneaking away to go do a seance so we can contact famed ufo researcher john mack <laughs> Of all people. You know, when you if put it like that, it sounds pretty fucking awesome. If there's anybody that's that's waiting around on the other side for somebody to try and talk to him, it's fucking John Mack. So let's go. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, very well said, Rory. Thank you. Jay? Um, I think one of the things that we can most take away from John Mack's life in terms of just lessons is you don't actually need mainstream existence mainstream acceptance in order to make the difference that you're trying to make mainstream acceptance will certainly make things easier in terms of you know funding and attention and not going and not getting sandbagged on a talk show that straight up lied to you about what was going to happen uh 
but you you could also just if if the rest of the world is like laughing at you or telling you to shut up or whatever, you could just keep doing what you were doing and that 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 is the important part is not necessarily that people believe you but that you are doing your work ethically and in good faith and to your to the best of your ability and that you are distributing the fruits of that labor to the people who are asking for it mm-hmm. <laughs> that like you know we we talked about Karen uh, Karen Austin said that her life was changed just because John Mack believed her and at the end of the day like I'm I'm in school to become a social worker that is the most important part of our job and that was doubly so when I spent a brief time in hospice and palliative care as that sort of social work worker is like our job is not to solve the problem our job is not even to get everyone else to understand that there is a problem our job is to kneel down next to the person who is suffering due to the problem and literally do whatever you can and whatever it takes in order to make that suffering even a millimeter less intense and John Mack is a prime example of if you just keep working away at that goal and ignore all of the other bullshit that's flying around in the world that you're that you're in you you can accomplish what you are trying to accomplish you just kind of you need to keep your priorities straight and remember what the actual goal here is yeah I mean, I, I think I fully agree with both of you, um, other than learning quite a bit more about the abduction phenomenon personally. Um, I, I think just to add to some stuff you said, you guys were saying, I think this reaffirmed for me, you know, what, what, I've, what we've already said on the show many times is, uh, you know, the whole we don't know what we don't know. And just adding to this book added to that. But also recently, uh, in case you didn't catch that, I just got married. And as part of that, we uh, took a honeymoon and we went out to Greece. And while out there, I saw a lot of ruins and we went to the oldest archaeological site in Greece. Uh, It's the island of Delos. And there's this basically an entire town there that you can walk through. That's all it's all ruins. There's no roofs on anything It's you know, hollowed out walls. But you get you can walk through there and get a real sense for the life of people that lived there. And. You know, it's indescribably ancient. You know, the the you are trying to piece together how these people live from these piles of rock. And yeah, archaeologists have done a great job putting it into a shape that we recognize. But still, those rocks just by time are weathered away. And it all seems so impossibly ancient. Right. But that's about thirty five hundred years ago. That's when that I mean that there was an older Neolithic site on the same island, but those buildings were 3,500 years ago. Our species has been on Earth for 100,000 years at least. Yeah. Like, how could we possibly think that we know everything right now? Right. Like, how could we possibly say that there isn't uh, things that we've forgotten over time? How could we even possibly say we understand our place on our own planet, let alone in the universe, when we have such a narrow view of our existence on this world? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. So that that lingered with me and definitely got compounded by John Mack. And I think you guys, though, have it right. I think not just in anomalous studies, but in everything. Um, it costs you nothing to give someone an ear. Yeah. 
And even if you don't believe them, just the act of letting them talk through it and not treating them uh, like a psychopath, it, it could do wonders. Yeah. And, and if they are, you know, suffering a delusional episode, that might help them get out of it is hearing it out loud, seeing, you know, having the chance to actually work through it. I mean, not to get too personal, but like, honest to God, like you're actually a good example of somebody who just naturally has a lot of empathy or not naturally. You probably work hard at it. But like for me, when I was going through all my struggles, you even though you did not agree with 99 percent of what I was doing, you listened to me. You let me vent it out. And eventually I got better. You know, it's like, you know, and again, it's it's something that costs you nothing but can mean everything to someone else. And if you're a selfish dickhole who believes that you should only ever do things to benefit yourself. I mean, I guess I'm not interested in knowing you. So (laughs) please unfollow us if you are a selfish dickhole. Bye bye. Or keep following us and give us money. I mean, we, we don't get, we have we no don't means get, for you to give us money. Yeah, we don't get any money. Yeah, this is we, we are we are paid negative dollars. <laughs> Correct. We invest in this. Yeah. All right. So are we ready to move to our about the author segment? Let's do it. Yep. All right. So a bit about Ralph Blumenthal. If you don't know who he is already. Yeah. Uh, he attended City College of New York, followed by Columbia University, followed by Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, he started his journalism career actually at Columbia, editing the City College campus, which is their local uh, newspaper. And he was an award-winning reporter for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009, and he co-authored the 2017 story, which broke the news of the Pentagon's secret UFO study program, uh, which was, as I said earlier, a bit of the catalyst for the current push for UFO disclosure. There, his accomplishments while he was at the time are quite literally too many to name. So (laughs) I'm going to just try to hit a couple high notes. Uh, At age 26, he was sent to cover the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia and the rise of German neo-Nazism. He was dispatched to Saigon, where he covered the fighting in Cambodia until he was recalled to the States in 71. He published a series on Nazi war criminals hiding in America, leading to the creation of a congressional bill that helped bar them from the country. Uh, And he also published a series on corrupt dealings in cocaine use by a U.S. representative, Fred Richmond, which led directly to the congressman's resignation and guilty plea. His 1984 article on Democratic vice presidential nominee Geraldine Ferraro exposed questionable financial dealings, which did have an impact on the election. In 1987, he led the team which exposed the Taiwan Broadly hoax for which he would be nominated for the Pulitzer. In 1988, he cracked the FBI's Pizza Connection drug case. And in 1993, him and his team won the Pulitzer for their coverage of the World Trade Center truck bombing. Uh, He's a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College. I don't know how to pronounce that. B-A-R-U-C-H. And uh, he's a summer journalism instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy. He currently lives in New York, and he's the author of three other books, uh, Miracle at Sing Sing, which is the story of Louis E. Laws, a young warden who reformed one of the worst prisons in American history. The Last Days of the Sicilians, a book exposing a mob-controlled drug operation to funnel billions of Turkish dollars and drugs into the United States, primarily through pizza parlors. And the Gotti Tapes, a book on the recordings the FBI made of known mobster John Gotti, revealing the inner workings of his operation. Uh, He is on record saying his proudest achievement is his daughters, Anna and Sophie, whom he shares the credit for with his wife, Deborah. And... 
as an extra little tidbit about the author, he's going to be coming on your favorite paranormal book club show next week. That's right. One week from today, we are interviewing Ralph Blumenthal for the second ever episode of Midnight Chats. We are beyond excited, almost catatonic, <laughs> uh, wandering around, not sure how this happened, but we are thrilled. I'm uh, having short 15 second panic attacks whenever I think about it. They're fun. Keep me invigorated. He's a real nice guy. It's going to be great. I'm, uh, I'm excited, but also I am nervous about this one, like way more than 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 Tenny, because I had at least met Tenny before. Yeah, it will go fine. Yeah. No, I'm excited. I'm excited. So look for that in one week time. It is going to have the Midnight Chats header, just like the John Tenney interview, uh, and should be good. Beyond that, I think we're ready to move into housekeeping. Let's go. Okay. So our next episode of the main Noctivigant show is coming in two weeks. That's going to be covering What Happened in Craig by Leland Hale. It's going to be a J-romp back into the world of murder. True crime. So Nick keeps remembering the title of this book as what happened to Craig. And, no, I've um, gone through so many variations. <laughs> I, what happened in the Craig? What happened to Craig? What, what happened, happened, Craig? What like, happened <laughs> at Craig? And a guy named Craig was clearly murdered in a Craig at a city called Craig. And it's like, no, 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 no. I promise no one named Craig was likely involved. Yeah, I know. I know that now. I read most of it on a beach in Greece, uh, which is actually going to be weird because I'm, I'm not going to have as uh, I'm not going to have notes really outside of what I wrote in my phone. Hmm. It's going to be weird for me. That's going to be interesting. Feeling like a lot of nervousness I'm about gonna, it. Actually, I, I'm, I'm excited to see you panic. Yeah. Uh, so that's coming. It's going to be fun. Um, and so if you want to email us uh, anything at all about the uh, about the show, you want any book suggestions, you want to, I don't know, send us a picture of your middle finger flipping us off. You can do that at noctivianpodcast at gmail.com. And if you uh, haven't yet, please go onto our social medias and give us a follow. We are on Twitter at noctivianpod and I am at Wicks. I am at bearish terror. I am at Midwest undead. And we also have a uh, Noctivigant Tumblr. And on which I post only the dankest of memes. Dankest of memes. And we also have an, a, a fairly active uh, Reddit account. I'm just trying to not get us banned. Again. I've only lost one subreddit so far. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Much like John Mack before him, Nick was, un- <laughs> was unfairly canceled by the Reddit elite for telling the truth. <laughs> Actually, it was for self-promotion, but it was still bullshit. And they're just afraid of our power. Yeah, that's it. No, our yeah, power. That is absolutely not it. But that's okay. Uh, I, I am a... All right. We have, we've met, made some good friends on Reddit. And also... If you if you haven't follow us on whatever media that you're listening to us on, be it Spotify, Apple, Deezer, Good Pods, Stitcher, Stitcher, uh, any of them, and leave us a five star review on any of them too, because that actually does help us. It pushes us up the algorithm so more people listen to us, which we want. Well, if you want to hear us talk about more books, yeah, yeah. Uh, who am I kidding? That's probably going to happen anyway. Also true. We've given them no incentive. Yeah. Good talk. Yeah, this is this is great. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. I think we should stop talking before we just tell them to come murder us or something. <laughs> All right, then. Well, I guess uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, stay safe out there. Don't get lost. Don't get lost.
Shocked, we went the whole episode without talking about John Mack's liberal use of his penis. Yeah, actually, that's true. <laughs>